Well, tonight we're looking at Luke chapter 18. So if you want to turn there in a Bible, that would be great. Looking at one of Jesus' parables. Last week we looked at the parable of the persistent widow, teaching us that we should pray always and not lose heart. Jesus talks about his people who cry out to him day and night. So that parable encourages us to pray and to keep on praying. And this parable that we're looking at tonight uh, teaches us how to pray, the attitude with which we should come before God. In particular, humbling ourselves and exalting God rather than vice versa. So, uh, Luke 18, uh, verse 9 to 14, let me read this parable for us. 18. Luke 18. Yep, page 877 in the Pew Bible. There we go. Uh, Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Well, appearances can be deceiving. Uh, Recently, I was looking on Craigslist because I was trying to help somebody who was looking for a new apartment. And I've never had to use Craigslist to find an apartment, but maybe you have, and or maybe you've uh, done that along with somebody else, and you, if you've done that, you know that the photos posted and the descriptions listed do not always match the reality of the property. So some experiences I've had, uh, a friend of mine said, oh, I saw this house that's posted for rent. And it happened to be a block down from where we used to live. And, but in front of the house was a for sale sign. He said, but no, on Craigslist it says it's for rent, not for sale. Well, it was a scam. It was a complete scam. It wasn't for rent at all. The person who was posting on Craigslist didn't even, you know, wasn't, didn't even own the house. Uh, another one, my wife and I, uh, this didn't involve Craigslist, but my wife and I were, several years ago were just sort of looking at houses in New Haven and we weren't even really wanting to buy one, but we just wanted to sort of see what was out there. And so we talked to a realtor, and realtor said, ah, here's a few houses, let me take you this one. 
So we walk up to the second floor, and literally from one side of the room to the other, you could almost slide down. Like, there was a, at least a two-foot difference in height, and there was no steps. The floor was, the, the house had settled into the ground, and so the floors had become completely warped. Of course, you would never know that from any description that was posted about it, but even the realtor said after looking at that, you don't want to buy that house. Um, I could go on, but you get, the, you get the point. Now, what we see in this passage is that appearances can be deceiving in church as well. Uh, the Pharisee, we, there's two, this parable is pretty simple, right? There's the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two guys, they both go up to the temple, they both stand there praying, and the Pharisee had an appearance of righteousness. Now, if you've read the Bible a lot, or if you've been in church for a long time, and you hear the word Pharisee, you might think that means a hypocrite, someone who just pretends to be religious, but they really aren't. But in Jesus' day, that's, uh, that's, that's not what people would have thought. So the Jewish historian Josephus said the Pharisees are, described the Pharisees as a class of Jews, a group of Jews who consider themselves the godliest of the nation and the most rigorous followers of the law. For the most part, that's who they sought to be. The, the name Pharisee means either separated ones or holy ones. And that's what they sought to be, is separated and holy unto God. So the Pharisees knew the Bible, and they studied it very carefully. Uh, unlike the Sadducees, who was another Jewish group at that time, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. The Pharisees believed in the whole Scripture, the whole Old Testament, all 39 books. Um... The Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in demons because the Bible talks about them. They believed in all those things. They could explain to you all those things. They could explain to you about God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how they fit together. And they had good explanations for that. And they not only adhered carefully to all the scriptures, but they also knew the history of the interpretation of them. And they followed the oral traditions of the rabbis. Besides that, the Pharisees were honest and law-abiding citizens, unlike the zealots who were violent revolutionaries. They were well-respected in the broader community, unlike the Herodians, another group who were sort of involved in corrupt political schemes. Right? The Pharisees, it seemed like they were the best group of them all. They were honest, law-abiding, upstanding citizens. They knew the Bible. They believed in God. This Pharisee was faithful in his marriage. He says, I'm not an adulterer. He paid his workers. He said, I'm not an extortioner. He, um, he, and he didn't just do the minimum that God's law required. He went over and beyond. It's, it's, he fasted twice a week. Now, the law only required people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees had developed a practice of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays and praying as part of their devotion to God. And he says, I tithe on everything I get. Now, again, strictly speaking, the law only required tithing on flocks, crops, wine, and oil, sort of the main things. Um, but the Pharisees even tithe from their herbs, right? They'd pick their mint from their plant, and they'd make sure to tithe one piece of mint for every ten pieces they took, for, you know, nine pieces they took for themselves, right? They were very careful. They did all these things. 
The Pharisee was used to, he seems quite confident and comfortable coming into the temple to pray. He stands, he prays, he walks confidently, he feels comfortable when he comes in. Right? So if you think of a Pharisee, you think of like a regular churchgoer, someone who lives a moral life, someone who has a good reputation, someone who goes above and beyond what God's law requires in some ways. He's the kind of person that you would look at and think, if anybody is a righteous man, that would be a righteous man. On almost everyone's definition. Now contrast the tax collector. So the tax collector would have worked for the government. And back then the government was the Roman Empire and everyone agreed, there was no disagreement, everyone agreed the Roman Empire was oppressive and unjust. And, especially, and, and the tax collector's profits came from extorting, the extortion of their own people. The way that many tax collectors' jobs worked was their boss would say, you have this area of land from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to Nazareth or wherever, right? These three cities and the area in between them. And at the end of the year, you need to deliver to me 10,000 denarii or whatever, right? Um, You know, a million bucks. So you go collect your taxes and your salary is whatever you collect on top of that. And so the tax collectors, many of them became very rich because they found ways to get a lot of money from the people. And so you know, there were lots of things that the different, the different Jewish groups, the different Jewish rabbis disagreed on. But one thing they all agreed on in Jesus' time, the rabbis agreed that it was okay to lie and deceive tax collectors because they were considered so corrupt. And they were in the same category as thieves and murderers. It was like tax collectors, thieves, and murderers. Those kind of people. You don't, you don't even have to tell them the truth because they're so corrupt and so unreliable and so wrong. So a Jewish man who collected taxes would have been expelled from his synagogue, disqualified from being a witness in court, and seen as a disgrace to his family. Tax collectors were despised and hated. So let me just give you a few modern examples that some of them might resonate more with with you than others about what a tax collector might have looked like. So think about the owner of a strip club or the CEO of a casino that intentionally seeks to make money off compulsive gamblers or a slumlord who never fixes up his rat and roach infested houses and just wants to make a lot of money off them or a drug dealer who runs the streets in the hood Or the big dude who owns the pawn shop, who's probably connected with the mafia. That's what a tax collector would have been like. He was working for a shady business, and he was benefiting from it. And when this guy walked into the temple, you can see he wasn't used to being there. I mean, if if this was the temple, this isn't a temple, it's just where we meet together, but... If this was a temple and he walked in, he would have sat in the back right 
behind that pillar where nobody would see him and nobody would notice him because he felt like I don't belong here and I'm not used to being here. Now, that's why the end of Jesus' parable is so surprising. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That means righteous. That means right with God. That means forgiven. That means accepted into God's family. Having God's stamp of approval. That's what justified means. Rather than the other. Jesus is saying at the end of the day, the tax collector was righteous before God and the Pharisee was not. You see how surprising and even scandalous of a story this would have been for Jesus' hearers. Right? Especially for any who are Pharisees. Now why? Why does Jesus say this? Jesus sees the reality that goes deeper than the appearance. See, if you look at what the Pharisee prays, his prayer is all about himself. He starts with the word God. God, I thank you. And then he just starts talking about himself. Do you notice how many times he says, I? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. It's all about how he, what he does makes him better than everybody else. Verse 11 could even be translated. Uh, it, it could be translated, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Or it could be translated, the Pharisee standing prayed to himself. Right? It's interesting. The Pharisee's prayer puts himself in the center and God on the edges. The tax collector's prayer is the opposite. The tax collector humbles himself in light of a holy God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the, Phar the, the Pharisee's prayer is much longer than the tax collector's. The tax collector's prayer is very short. And it's not wordy. He's probably not used to praying a lot. But he gets right to the point of it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, liter and, and he uses a very interesting word when he says, be merciful. It's the word that is usually translated, God, make atonement for me. It's the word that was used to describe what the high priest did when he went into the holy place once a year, and he offered a sacrifice to cleanse the people of Israel from all their sins. And he went and he offered that sacrifice before what was called the mercy seat, called the hilasterion. And that's the same word that's called the mercy seat, sort of where God offered his forgiveness to the people through the 
sacrifice that the priests offered on their behalf. And the people received mercy as a result. And that's what the tax collector says. God, make atonement for me. Make a sacrifice for me to make me clean. See, he doesn't come parading his own accomplishments. He, has, he, he knows that he has nothing to offer to God. He comes simply empty-handed saying, God, have mercy on me. That's the only way I can come before you is if you have mercy and if you cover over my sins by a sacrifice. And at the end of the day, Jesus said he went home justified before God. He was right with God at the end of the day. And Jesus, I mean, how amazing is that? Jesus doesn't say, well, at the end of the day, the tax collector was a little closer than the Pharisee. No. He doesn't say, at the end of the day, the tax collector had made a couple steps in the right direction, and maybe if he kept on making steps in the right direction, then he would be approved and accepted and forgiven by God. No, he says, he went down to his house. When he left that temple, God He was right with God. And the Pharisee, despite all the good things he did, wasn't. Now, what do we take away from this? I want to say three things, three applications, three things that we can take away from this passage. Number one, it's a word of warning. It says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so this parable is perhaps primarily a warning. It's not just what you do that matters. It also matters why you do it. You know, there are many things that can motivate people to act in ways that look good and appear righteous. Two of those things are pride wanting to preserve your own reputation and fear of other people, wanting to please others and wanting their approval. And if you combine both of those things, those two things put together can motivate you to do a lot of good things. Well, because, you know, if, if there's something that's you're tempted to do, that's bad, but you think that you'll be found out and it'll be embarrassing, then you're not going to do it because you don't want to be embarrassed. Or if you think people will look at you in a more negative light, you won't do it because you think somebody's not going to think so well of me. I mean, if if you put just those two things together, pride and the fear of man, fear of other people, That can motivate all kinds of good things. It can motivate fasting and praying. It can motivate tithing, right? Especially the way the Pharisees did it very publicly. So that everybody knew. It can motivate you to come to church. Maybe not so much here in New England, right? You don't get a lot of social props from coming to church here. But in some places, right? That's the respectable thing to do on Sunday. Sometimes people come up here from other parts of the country... And that's really the reason they went to church. Their family did it, or 
most of their friends did it, or, you know, it just sort of feels like the right thing to do, and you, you know, and then you come to a place like this, and you, and you have to examine your motives. You have to say, why do I come here? See, it's not just what you do that matters, it also matters why you do it. And this is also sometimes why people who seem to be very good and moral upstanding citizens sometimes get caught with horrible things. Whether it's a crime that lands them in jail, or a secret sin that nobody knows about, or a pattern of abusive or controlling behavior that lies under the surface. It's because the things that are motivating to do all the good things, all the things that make them appear good, in some circumstances, let's say if, if, if somebody gets, if they get criticized, they're going to blast you off. Because don't you dare criticize me. Right? Or maybe you get the silent treatment as a result. So there's a warning. It's possible to do everything the Pharisee did and go home not right with God and facing ultimately God's judgment and punishment. And that's a, that's a, a serious warning. Now, how can we know... Uh, well, I'll get to that later. How can we know if we're, if we're falling into that Pharisee trap? I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So it's a word of warning, but it's also a word of hope. It's a word of hope for people like the tax collector. If you feel like when you come to church or when you hang out with Christians, if there's some part of, if there's a big part of you that feels like, I just feel like I don't quite belong here. I don't, I know that I don't measure up and some other people, you look at them and they're clearly more mature than I am and I just, I just don't know whether I really belong here and so maybe some days you don't come to church because you really feel that and so you stay away or you don't pursue Christian friendships because you feel that shame and you know deep down inside you're not worthy to come before God and come among his people. There's a word of hope for you. Because Jesus said the tax collector went down to his house justified before God. That God looked upon him with favor and mercy and grace. And that word justified, it's, a, it's like the judge's gavel, right? If you ever had to deal with the courts or if you've gone with people to court, what happens the first time you go to court? They continue it. Then what happens the second time? They continue it again, right? And again. And it's not unusual to have, right, five, six, seven, eight court dates dealing with the same thing because they take a long time to make decisions. That word justified is as if you walk into court before God and the judge slams the gavel down and says, you are not guilty, you can go free. I mean... How liberating that is. If you come into God's presence and you know that you don't deserve to be there and you know that you're actually guilty and yet you hear in Jesus Christ God the Father saying to you 
Jesus Christ has made atonement for you. And so, I will have mercy on you. It's the most liberating thing in the world. I mean, it's amazing if, if you've ever been in a court case and you've, or you know someone who's been there, right? And they've been under the weight of this fear of what's going to happen. Am I going to get thrown in jail? Am I going to have to pay a fine? How am I going to pay the fine? I don't have any money anyway. And you get that verdict. Not guilty. Set free. How much more? If that is the verdict that you have before the God who created all things. Before the judge of the universe. And that's what Jesus says we can have through him. So there's a word of hope for tax collectors. I mean, just consider some of the people we consider great leaders in the Bible. Just three. Moses. Well, when Moses was young and impulsive, he killed an Egyptian. He murdered someone who was beating up on his fellow Hebrew. Now, yes, was he trying to do justice? Yeah, was it, but, but did he murder someone? Yeah, he murdered someone. And so he had to run away for 40 years. He had to face some of the consequences of that. But God wasn't done with him. And God took Moses, who was prone to impulsive anger, and made him into the leader of God's people. Or think about David. When he was middle-aged and didn't have quite enough to do. And he fell into adultery with Bathsheba. And then he arranged for her husband to be killed. Great King David, a man after God's own heart, and that's what he did. A horrible, evil thing. Or Paul, who had persecuted Christians. And when Stephen was being stoned, he stood there giving his approval personally. You know, nearly all of the great leaders in the Bible had some pretty serious character flaws and or moral failures. Nearly all of them. But what happened? What's the difference? I mean, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But what happened so that their sin did not result in death and judgment? Well, if you you look at King David, King David wrote a psalm, Psalm 51. He wrote the psalm I quoted, Psalm 32, that I quoted at the beginning of the service. But he also wrote Psalm 51, and if you look back there, Psalm 51, page 474 in the Pew Bible. The psalm begins this way. Well, it's, 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 the title says, the psalm, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, Nathan had confronted him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
David didn't make any excuses. He didn't come to God and say, but God, I've been a pretty good king. I've been a really good king. I mean, you know, when Saul was coming after me, I didn't kill him. I mean, yeah, I sort of messed up here, but, but, but notice, but you know, I've, I've still done a lot of good. I, I really deserve to be blessed for all the good I've done. No, he doesn't do any of that. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And he goes on. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He goes on. He doesn't hide his sin. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't explain it away. He has both a general sense of his sinfulness and a specific concrete understanding of his specific concrete failures. What I want to end with is my third point of application. It's a word of warning. It's a word of hope. But what's the difference? What's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? Right? And how can we tell? How can we, how can we have, how can we see in our own hearts uh, what that looks like. And I think one thing we see in, in, in David's psalm and in the tax collector is he has both, he has a sense of his own sin, both generally and specifically. Now, some people have a sense of their own sin generally. So they'll say, oh yes, I'm a sinner. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm not perfect. I, I acknowledge that. But then if you actually ask them so, is, are there any? But if, if you if you listen to them, they never actually admit any particular things that they've done wrong. If you ask them, you know, are you a sinner before God? They'll say, yes, I am. But if you confront them about something specific they've done wrong, then they'll say, but well, I had a reason for doing that, and I have an explanation for this, and really, no, it wasn't that. Now, other people are the reverse. Other people will sort of reluctantly admit that they have committed sin in very specific areas. But in general, they would say, but generally I'm a good person. I just, okay, I did, I I admit it, I I lied, I was wrong, I shouldn't have said that, but generally I'm a good person. David has both a sense of his general sinfulness, he says, against you have I sinned, I've Even from my mother's womb, I've been born in sin. But he also confesses, yes, I committed adultery. Yes, I did that. That's one of the ways we can see that that the Holy Spirit is actually bringing conviction to our hearts and shining his light in our hearts, is that we have both a general and a specific sense of our sin. Okay, if you look at the tax collector in the parable... He calls himself a sinner, right? He has a general sense of sin. And then if you look at Zacchaeus in the next chapter, who's also a tax collector, he confesses very specific sin. You know, if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back. He's actually willing to make amends. So if you combine those two, you see both. 
Uh, but I think that's one way we can, we can tell the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts when we have a both general and specific sense of sin. Second thing the Holy Spirit produces is uh, the fear of the Lord. And that, that word, the fear of the Lord, is, is used throughout a lot of the Bible. Um, and it doesn't just mean being afraid of God. And it doesn't mean being terrified by God and running away from Him. It means having, it means having God at the center of our picture. And living in reverent obedience before Him. But it also means, uh, Psalm 130, the end of Psalm 130... Uh, sorry, the middle of Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verse 4, verse 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if God kept a list of all our sins, no one would pass the test. But he says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So the fear of the Lord is the kind of fear, it's like the kind of fear that a child would have if they were wandering into a busy street and their parents suddenly snatched them out of traffic and they realized that if their parent hadn't snatched them out of traffic, the bus would have run over them. And so what do they do after that? They start listening to their parent. They start obeying their parent. They start trusting their parent even when they don't understand what their, the reason for their parents' commands. They have a, a right kind of fear of their mother or father. And that's the kind of fear of the Lord that the Bible is talking about. That's the kind of fear of the Lord the tax collector had. He stood at a distance. He beat his breast. That was a, a, and, and the way the, the, those verbs are written, it's an ongoing action. It's not just a one-time demonstration. But it's an ongoing posture of repentance and confessing his sin. And acknowledging he's unworthy to stand before God. So he has a kind of a fear of the Lord. Knowing who he is in light of God's holiness. And then knowing who he is in light of God's mercy. So sin, general and specific, fear of the Lord. And three, um, our attitude uh, our attitude towards prayer and other good works. Um, let me end with... Can turn to Philippians. I want to end with a verse from Philippians. Uh, because Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, page 981, if you're looking in a pew Bible, Paul describes himself as a Pharisee. That was the school that was the Apostle Paul was trained in. He would have fit the description of this guy who came to the temple, fasting twice a week, giving tithes of all I get. He knew the scriptures. He was an upstanding citizen. Of course, he persecuted Christians because he thought that he should at one point. But, um, but this is what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and on. He says, whatever gain I had, in other words, whatever gain I had, whatever privileges I had from being born into a certain family, whatever moral accomplishments I had as a Pharisee, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, counted, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things 
and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's where it is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, the Apostle Paul found righteousness from God. Not by his efforts and his works, but by faith in the work of Jesus who had died on the cross for him and who had been raised from the dead. He found justification before God just like this tax collector. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus is not saying that you have to become like a tax collector and join the mafia or work for a shady business or do all kinds of crazy things or go to jail, right? Jesus is not saying you need to do that. What he's saying is you need to have that same humility that that tax collector showed. I mean, isn't it amazing that Paul the Pharisee, right? Jesus is saying the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee didn't. But yet, Jesus saved Paul the Pharisee. The man who was good in all kinds of ways. And who obeyed the law. And yet he brought him to his knees at the foot of the cross. So that's the point of this parable. As Jesus says in the end, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable. And we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to take it to heart as a word of warning against trusting in our own righteousness and treating others with contempt as a result. But Lord, that we would receive it also as a word of hope and promise. Lord, this is what you came to do. You came to lay down your life for sinners like us. And everyone who comes to you can know that forgiveness that the tax collector knew. And Lord, we, I pray that every person in this place would not leave here without knowing what the tax collector knew. Being justified before God. Lord, we call out to you, have mercy on us. And make us so that we do, so that we're aware of our sin... And so that we do all the good works that you've called us to do out of a fear of the Lord more and more. Lord, not to promote ourselves, not to bring our accomplishments before you, but simply to say thank you for what you've done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.